chapter 11, verse 27 to chapter 12, verse 12. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the, the teacher of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will, say, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. So previously, in, from chapter 11, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Now, we happen to know this incident as, the, the, as Jesus' triumphal entry. But if that's the case for Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12, that's appropriate. But if we read Mark's uh, record, Mark is actually silenced about Jesus' response towards people's appraisal. Rather, rather he, Mark recorded that Jesus went right into the temple courts in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 11. And that's right after people shouted, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, blesses the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. So we know that Mark's focal point here, it wasn't just Jesus' messiahship. 
but more so in revealing where Jesus' um, heart and his eyes were pointing to as he entered into Jerusalem. In verse 11, he also said, um, he went into the temple courts, Jesus looked around at everything. Now, we have to recall the man all the way back from chapter, Luke chapter 10, uh, no, sorry, Mark chapter 10, when I um, shared about the story, a young rich ruler, after away from Jesus, disciples were amazed by this, and they said to one another, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them. I, I said the word emblepo, it's not just looking at the object, but it was to scrutinize and, and, and carefully examine something. And that's the same word that Mark used here, periblepethi. He, when Jesus walked into the temple courts, he scrutinized and carefully examined what was happening in that time in the temple courts. And from that time on, the story unfolds. And next day, on the way to the temple courts again, Jesus um, cursed on unfruitful fig tree. Um, and then he cleansed the temple where there was merchandise and, and exchanges of money happened. Then Peter, after that incident, Peter found out that the fig tree that Jesus cursed in the present became withered. So, so in, in this like, structure, Mark intentionally sandwiched this temple cleansing incident in between the cursing of the fig tree and its withering in order to implicitly expose that the Israel's temple and its religiosity, unfruitfulness, and its withered condition. But, but Jesus doesn't stop there. Uh, from verse, uh, verse 22, he, he, uh, Jesus not only exposed the condition of the temple, but, but he... But he also said, what does it really look like to be the true Israel and God's people? He said, have faith in God, his faithful character. And that also goes hand in hand uh, with, with getting it right with one's neighbor. In, in verse 25, uh, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So it's not just your with father, but also uh, getting it right with your relationship with, with your neighbors was important in, in, having, uh, in, in the matter of having faith in God. In that sense, how Jesus diagnosed about the temple uh, and, and its system, as in uh, verse 17, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Revealed that Israel's unfaithfulness as a blessing to all nations and the light of the world as well. So, within this context, today's passage once again brings us to the temple scene. Uh, verse 27, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. They not only came to him, but they challenged and questioned Jesus' authority. Now, 
it really fascinates me how how the Sanhedrin, this religious leaders group, opposed Jesus so strongly that they were looking for a way to kill him. Uh, chapter uh, eleven, verse eighteen, uh, and they also try to find a way to arrest him. Chapter twelve, verse twelve. Despite everyone else uh, seemed to appraise Jesus and 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 and, and started to rally around him from from his entrance into Jerusalem. It's not like Jesus was revolting against Rome or, or uh, damaging the society. But, but what we found so far in the, in the Gospel of Mark, um, in this series, that, that Jesus uh, healed the sick, he fed the hunger, and he, he restored the ruin. So, so this is a crucial question, actually. When, when, whenever we face uh, this conflict between uh, Jesus and the religious leaders... Uh, rather than just overlooking and, and just counting them as a bad characters in, in the story. We have to ask, why did they do that? See, this religious leader group, um, in other words, Sanhedrin, uh, were, were the ones who, who operate the temple and the uh, synagogue system at this time. So, so when Jesus exposed the problem of the temple, they were the ones who were challenged as its representatives. See? Uh, Sanhedrin, as a designated and appointed leaders of the day, they were the ones who held the responsibility to carry the mission of the temple, being a house of a prayer for all nations. Just as the ten uh, parable were uh, re- responsible to take care of the vineyard and give owners. And Mark also recorded that, that, that the Sanhedrin's conviction in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 12, that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest Jesus because, because they knew, they knew that Jesus had spoken the parable against them. So the Sanhedrin's, as a tenant, wicked tenants, their unfaithfulness and, and responsibilities uh, were exposed. And I just wanted to see uh, what were those. At first, they desecrated a house of prayer for all nations by making a den of robbers. Um, when Jesus said that he was quoting Isaiah 56, one, uh, verse 1 to 8, uh, Isaiah, uh, uh, no, no, Israel was supposed to include foreigners and uh, eunuchs who were Uh, uh, the house of prayer for all nations into a den of robber. He, he quoted again from Jeremiah 7, verse 1 to 11. Again, the religious leaders and the temple and its God's world. So, so what Jesus wanted to expose was neither ritual, regular, uh, ritual, regular, or, or uh, worship, uh, but it was more so that uh, how they were ignored uh, towards foreigners, fatherless, and, and the widow, the social margins in the time. Moreover, 
according to Jeremiah 7, they, they, they use their prestige and privilege uh, to extort money, murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to the idols. What really kept in this, in this um, scenario is that, is that they were doing all of this uh, while they were worshiping God in the temple in every day, every day of their life. In other words, the Israelites never abandoned God in their history. <laughs> but, but, but they were worshipping other things while they were worshipping God. That, that's the problem here. And secondly, they, they devalued uh, the authority of God by overvaluing their own authority. In, in, in Mark 11, verse 31 to 32, Mark recorded that, that it was obvious that everyone held that, held that John truly was a prophet. So, so when they said, we don't know if this really comes from heaven or human origin, they were lying. They refused to answer even they knew the answer. And here's why. In verse 32, they feared the people. In other words, having the crowd and the peoples on their side was to have their power and authority through people's vote and popularity. In words, it's a real politic. It means their principles, how they operated, how they evolved their life was not based on the truth or moral consideration, but on their practical value. In this case, was their popularity and votes from the crowd. And they also discarded uh, the responsibilities as the tenants in the vineyard in the parable. They did not give back what was due to God. Instead, they, they disrespected God's, God who was the true owner and then the source of the authority. See, in the parable, the owner sent his, his servants over and over and what were the tenants' responses? They seized them, beat them, they sent them away empty-handed, struck on their heads, treated them shamefully, and they even killed them. But isn't that, if you look at Old Testament accounts, isn't that what these people did all along, right? Whenever the Israelites were dishonoring God or unfaith, being unfaithful, God sent so many prophets, uh, the men and men and women of God, to re-instruct them to, to walk in the right way. What did they do? They, they mistreated God's servants. Uh, they ignored the message, and they reveled against God. And finally, in this parable, by mentioning a son's death, Jesus alluded that this Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, will destroy the rightful heir of the owner who had the authority of the father and the owner. In this parable, the owner sent son whom he loved. By the way, this is the same phrase that Mark used when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 11, after the immersion, when Jesus came out from the water, there was a voice from the heaven, from the sky, saying, this is my son whom I love. This is the same phrase that Mark used in this parable. So this owner hoped that they would respect his son at least. Uh, um, but they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
thinking that they could take the inheritance this way. Going back to their context, in this, in this historical context, why did the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, try to arrest Jesus and to kill him? Because they feared the fact that Jesus was rightful heir and the one who had the true authority from the Father in heaven. While they were abusing their authority in the temple. Moreover, as soon as Jesus entering into the Jerusalem, uh, chapter 11 would say, Jesus was getting all the votes and, 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 and people um, started to stand on his side. So Jesus was not only uh, challenging this religious people uh, by exposing their wickedness, but also Jesus himself, his presence, uh, was a threat to their real politic. And, it, and if you think about, like, all the way back to chapter 2, uh, Jesus all claimed that he is even uh, the, Lord of the, even, the Lord of even of the Sabbath. The more I think about it, it it's, it's kind of absurd. Like, how could this be? Like, how could they desecrate the temple? Authority, discard the responsibility as religious leaders and tenants, and even destroy the rightful heir when he came as a Jesus Christ while they worship in the temple. But when I when I look at myself sometimes, the worship ministry at Oregon Grace Chapel studying and teaching the Bible in public and private. I rebelled against God, the true owner of the vineyard. I'm still claiming to, to, to have the authority um, in my life rather than giving it back to God. Whatever gains to me are the best in the highest way. I'm still neglecting the marginalized around me when, when it comes to giving up my comfort. I, I still miserably keep on sinning inside of the Lord by, by being indifferent and, you know, towards, towards his goodness and care. I'm still counting myself, uh, uh, myself, my life, and all I have um, as a trustee, more than God. Even though I verbally claim that, that he is the one who sought me and bought me from the dark domain, and he is the one who holds my tremor in my hands. But how about you? Don't we all know that at this point that, that we are his temple by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us? Uh, Romans 12, uh, 3 and 6. We all uh, called to be a royal priesthood. First Peter two nine to ten. Then, then not only we are called to live to intersect with God's presence, but also to be bound by His presence and to live out by His presence. Right? See, temple and worship are not only reserved for for Sunday. 
I'm devotional. Rather than they are meet us and, and, and they, they should spring out from us. So how can we ever stop praising God if he's indeed with us? How can we still deny him by, by our misconduct and, and misbehavior when he's still with us? How can we mistreat others when we know that God's presence is in and they are also the bearer of his image in our day. <coughs> see, see, in this story, what the chief priest, the, the teachers of the law, and the, and the elders missed was not their, their, um, their worship or their devotions to God. By the way, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this to discredit uh, or devalue our, our public and uh, private worship of God. But th- those are critical and crucially important uh, and actually, they, they, they interdependently uh, work with the fruit of the worship. But that's a different story. The real problem was that they were uh, the nominal Israelites. They were following God only when they walked in the temple. See, the so Mark brings, what Mark suggests in this little passage is that we should, we should hold fast what Jesus said in have faith in God. Trust his character and his faithfulness. Uh, get it right with your neighbors. Do not hold anything against anyone. Forgive them. Be the house of the prayer for all nations. Let people see God in you in your everyday life. Walk with God. Imitate him. Shine forth the warmth of God's grace and goodness to all whom you interact with. See? But if any of you are like me, um, are like the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, who are still holding the authority of ourselves back from God, if you find yourself that you are still deliberately rebelling against God when you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you know that you are still holding yourself back from God when you recognize yourselves as a tenant of God's vineyard, I want us to take this um, warning seriously from Hebrews 10, verse 26 to 29. From Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrew talks about the proper worship in the temple and how Christ replaced and fulfilled uh, all that sacrificial system in order that we may confidently come before God. But from, from chapter 10, verse 26, the author of Hebrew warned against those who abuse this gift and grace of God. It's just like this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment of and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? I'll let it speak to yours. Self. Um, but on the other hand, 
if any of us are trying to live as a temple of the Holy Spirit and present ourselves pure in His sight and as a living sacrifice in this world, just like we saw in the parable, we will experience hardship. We will experience unfairness, mistreatment, shame, and scorn. Just like the, the servants of the, the owner of the vineyard and the, his, his own son had to ex- experience in this parable. However, if you still decide and reaffirm yourselves to hold fast to this truth and hope, I, 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 want, to, I want to present you um, the hope from this parable. Mark chapter 12, verse 9 to 11. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of the scripture, <clears throat> this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Even though Jesus uh, started Uh, uh, Jesus concluded his parable with with um, with the death of 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 the owner of the vineyard, and and retribution of the of the owner. And it was, it, it, so it, so it seems a very tragic story, but at the end Jesus also inserted. Psalm 118, verse 20 to 23, at the end, to predict that the Son will be vindicated from the death by the Lord. And indeed, we know our God raised Christ from the dead as the first of those who have fallen asleep. And we, as the of Christ, as we unite and participate in Christ's sufferings and death, we too will be vindicated by God at the end and somehow attain the resurrection from the dead as Christ did. So no matter how our life is seemingly defeated, God will vindicate us in Christ just as he vindicated his son, Christ. So I exalt you to to set your eyes on this hope, to anticipate at God's redemptive work in you. Now, who are you in this story? Then what will the owner of the vineyard do to you? For all who trust in Jesus, uh, or if there's someone here who has not yet, but maybe even now would trust in Jesus, we invite you over these next few minutes to share and participate in communion. If you're not ready to do so, that's okay. Uh, we, we ask that you don't feel, we just would say don't feel any pressure, feel free to let the cup and the bread pass. Uh, in the parable of the tenants, Jesus, that, that Daniel just referred to, Jesus looked back to Israel's poor treatment of the prophets. 
And then he looked ahead, really in very short order, of what would happen to him. The, in the story, the owner of the vineyard's son, the heir, that he would be rejected and he would be killed by those the father had entrusted with his property. And, and, and of course, the irony in this, the, the beautiful irony in this, is that this ultimate injustice of that heir being killed would be the very thing that God would use to enact his justice on sin. Right? So, so it was completely unjust what happened to the heir, what happened to the son. But through that injustice, God enacted his justice on sin so that those who had no right to be heirs could become heirs. That the innocent was given for the guilty. So that any guilty one who, ha who puts their faith in the innocent one and the sacrifice that he made, laying his life down, would then, though no earthly mind could ever imagine it, become an heir of the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful irony. <laughs> it's a beautiful irony. The injustice was what God used to render his justice so that the guilty could become heirs through faith. And this is how God has demonstrated his great love toward us. Verses that many of us have heard out of Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were still out of the kingdom, while we were no, had no right of being an heir. That's when Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we, have, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. It's a rejoicing. And, we, you know, we reflect on the fact that the heir had to be killed, that there was such injustice. But, but again, the irony is, in this we rejoice. We don't take it lightly. There, there's a rightful sadness and mourning for what Christ had to go through on our behalf. But we also say, what love is this? As we consume this bread and this cup this morning, I want you to be mindful of this, that, that we partake in symbols that represent our participation in Christ. That which we could not have attained on our own, Jesus has attained for us. And, and when we take this, this, this bread, it's, it's his body broken for us, this cup, this, his blood poured out for us under the forgiveness of sins. We, we call this sacrament communion. 
because it represents our ultimate connection with God through our unity with Jesus Christ, that we have communed with him in his broken body and his poured out blood. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says exactly this. It says that we're told that, we're told that this cup, in, through this cup, we have a participation. That's the word that in, in the NIV. It also could be rendered a communion. We have a participation in the blood of, of Christ. And then he goes on to say, in the bread, we have a participation or a communion in the body of Christ. It represents that we together have become partakers in Jesus. That the heir who laid his life down has allowed us to partake in him so that we can become reconciled to God and be heirs. We are partakers in his death towards sin. Partakers in his resurrected life. The Christ that will never die again. And then the next verse in that, in that section, 1 Corinthians 10, 17, says that as we share in the one loaf, this idea that the bread comes from, from one contained loaf and it represents Jesus' one body, we demonstrate that we who are many are one body. We're together participants, the body of Christ, though we are many, one body in the body and blood of Jesus. And in this, this, this symbolic and tangible demonstration that we are participants in Christ is meant to be a reminder for us regularly until we meet him face to face. Our union with Jesus, our union with one another in Jesus. Jesus told his friends, and, and by extension, to, I believe, to us at the last Passover supper, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. We're, we do it to remember. We drink, and he abstains. Literally, I think. There's going to be a feast coming, right? The wedding feast of the Lamb. And we're going to be a family and we're all heirs. And the Lord says, I'm not going to touch this, the, the fruit of the vine until that day. You drink, you remember me. I'm abstaining and then one day we're going to party. Isn't that great? So as we pass the bread and the juice, rejoice in the great love of God. Rejoice in the great grace of God on your behalf in your participation in Christ, his death, his resurrection unto eternal life. Can I have uh, Joe and Sean?